A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad that you're with me on the program today. We're going to be talking about a uh, point-counterpoint from uh, inside sources that, uh, well, I was lucky enough to be a part of. Uh, Michael Graham from Inside Sources reached out to me a few days ago and said, hey, uh, so we've got this column running uh, by uh, Nick Wilson, who's the Senior Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress, uh, about how you know all of these uh, gun-controlled locales um, saw a reduction in violent crime last year. Uh, would you like to write a, a counterpoint? To, because the basis of the article was that, uh, you know, it's because of all of these gun control laws that we saw violent crime drop in these locations. Now, I didn't have a chance to read uh, Nick Wilson's column beforehand, but I did know the gist of what he was going to be writing about. So I told Michael, sure, I'd be happy to, uh, to write something. Um, a little bit shorter than what I'm used to at Bearing Arms, so I had to uh, kind of condense my arguments. But uh, I, I so this is out now. Both the uh, point from uh, uh, Nick Wilson and the uh, counterpoint by myself. And you know, I have to say, I don't like to toot my own horn a lot, but I I felt like I did a pretty good job of responding to arguments that I had not actually seen presented here. But I want to go through uh, what Nick Wilson wrote as well as a couple of the uh, things that I had to say about violent crime last year, because according to the statistics, um, we did see perhaps the biggest one-year decline in our national homicide rate ever recorded, which shouldn't have happened, according to gun control activists, right? Their fundamental theory is that more guns equals more crime. Well, we have more guns last year than we did the year before and the year before that and the year before that. And yet violent crime, particularly homicides, uh, dropping by more than 10 percent nationwide, including, by the way, uh, major declines in cities that are part of constitutional carry states, which, again, should be absolutely impossible according to gun control activists. So Wilson uh, writes that following an alarming national spike in violent crime over the first two years of the coronavirus pandemic in 2023, we saw the largest one-year decline in murder rates in modern U.S. history. However, he writes, this remarkable drop hasn't been felt evenly across the country, which is true. He says in states with weakened gun laws are seeing the least progress, which is not true. He says, if we want to avoid needless deaths and devastation, like our nation has already experienced this new year, we've got to follow the data and pass stronger gun safety laws in every state. Well, I, I think the data shows something different. He says, we're an increasingly divided country, which again, I will concede that point. And I just politically writes, analyzing 2023 gun violence archive data, which is a problem in and of itself, given how broadly uh, the GBA defines things like a mass shooting. Uh, Wilson writes that uh, firearm homicides fell much faster in states with the strongest gun laws, while states with the weakest gun laws saw marginal improvements to public safety, if any. Of the 300 largest U.S. cities, those in states with the strongest gun laws experienced 19.4% fewer gun homicides in 2023, he writes, compared to the previous year, while st cities and states with the weakest gun laws saw only 5.1% fewer gun homicides. So a couple of things here. First of all, how do you define strongest versus weakest? And where's that line? 
right? Where does it go from strongest to, let's say, the fuzzy middle ground and then to the weakest? It's easy to say, all right, well, Oklahoma has some of the weakest gun laws in the country. California has some of the strongest gun laws in the country. But what about the other 48 states in between? There's also an issue when you look at the 300 largest cities in the United States. Because a lot of those cities are going to have homicides that typically run in the single digits every year, not the double digits, not the triple digits like we see in Chicago, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Los Angeles, Oakland, California, places like that. Start getting into those smaller towns and let's say you've got one more homicide uh, than what took place in you know 2022. Well, if you only had three homicides the year before and now you've got four, that's going to seem like a double-digit increase in homicides, right? Conversely, if you have a small town, again, one of the 300 largest cities, but still a small town compared to places like Philadelphia or Washington, D.C., and you have one less murder than you had the year before, you're going to see a double-digit drop. So I think when you really start uh, crunching the numbers and you get down that far, if you're going to be talking about percentages, it gets a little dicey. Right, because one or two homicides can cause wild swings in the percentages, um, which is why, in my counterpoint, I stuck with big cities that most of us have heard of before. Uh, Wilson uh, goes on to say, strong gun laws saves lives. Says not a single state that received an A grade for gun law strength from the Giffords Law Center last year saw an increase in their gun homicide rate in 2023. Colorado, he writes, saw a 19% reduction in gun homicides last year. Rather than become complacent, he writes, the state legislature passed additional life-saving laws, including raising the minimum age to purchase guns, enacting waiting periods, and increasing access to justice for survivors. Colorado, he writes, was the most improved state, uh, most improved state in Giver's gun law rankings, moving from a B to an A minus. Now, here's the thing: <laughs> from a B to an A minus, right? So, according to Wilson, Colorado already had pretty good gun laws on the books, right? And yet, over the past 10 years, as we've talked about, violent crime in Colorado has almost doubled. Now, last year, it's true, the state did see a decrease, like almost every other state in the country. Um, but what about those other nine years? Why doesn't Nick Wilson talk about what happened after Colorado passed and approved and signed into law universal background checks? or bans on magazines, or red flag laws, or ending firearms preemption. Because crime didn't drop when those laws were passed. So would Wilson admit or acknowledge that those laws did nothing to improve public safety in Colorado? Of course he wouldn't. Why would he argue against his own gun control agenda? This is simply a matter of cherry-picking data while ignoring those statistics that are inconvenient. For Wilson's argument, uh, he writes, uh, gun violence remains higher overall than before the pandemic hit, uh, which is true nationwide, but not in every state. And he says that there are significant threats to those hard fought gains. Our extreme right wing Supreme Court could roll back critical state and federal gun laws that have protected American lives for decades, like the ability to disarm domestic abusers and regulate machine guns. States with progressive gun violence reduction programs need to follow California's lead and get creative when it comes to funding these vital programs to avoid a dangerous fiscal cliff when American Rescue Plan Act funds expire. So this is, you know, there's one area where I would probably find some common ground with Nick Wilson. 
and that is on community violence intervention programs that do not involve the passage of new gun control laws that are aimed at law-abiding citizens. Typically, the most effective community anti-violence programs are those that are aimed at the most likely offenders and the most likely victims of violent crime. And there are programs out there that have a proven track record of success. One of the programs that I've talked about on a regular basis, both here on this program, I've written about it at Bearing Arms, is Operation Ceasefire, which was originally put in effect in Boston back in the 1990s and reduced the juvenile homicide rate by more than 50%. David Kennedy, who's a justice, a criminal justice professor at John Jay College, uh, helped to spearhead that program. He helped implement it in dozens of cities across the country over the past 25 years. And I actually had been arguing and advocating for Operation Ceasefire here in Virginia uh, for the last several years. But Democrats thwarted those efforts. They refused to sign off on funding until very recently. Thankfully, uh, we now have grant money available for programs like Operation Ceasefire. It's being run out of Attorney General Jason Meares' office. We've had the Attorney General on the program, as a matter of fact, talking about some of the initial success in Virginia. Where, again, um, in cities like Roanoke, Richmond, I think Petersburg, it's in place as well. Uh, the idea is you identify who those most likely offenders are, right? Most of them are already well-known to law enforcement. They're already in the criminal justice system. They're already on probation. So you call them in and you say, listen, here's the deal. You're going to stop shooting. And we will help you if you let us, but we'll make you if you don't. So behind door number one, we've got community services for you. We're going to help you get your GED. We're going to get you counseling if you need it. We're going to get you job training. We're going to give you the tools that you need to chart a new course in life. If you don't take advantage of those tools, however, if you continue doing what you're doing, then the next time you're arrested, we're going to kick your case up to federal court if possible. If we can't, we're not going to offer you a plea deal. You're not going to get a slap on the wrist. We're going to put you behind bars for as long as we possibly can. Because one way or the other, you're going to stop shooting. It is a carrot and stick approach that recognizes not everybody will take advantage of these opportunities. And so there need to be consequences for those who continue committing these violent crimes. But it also does give individuals a way out. Right? A lot of people... A lot of these individuals who, again, are most likely to commit and be victims of violent crime would love to escape that life. They don't want to die when they're 19, 20 years old. They don't want to be constantly looking over their shoulder, but they don't know how to break this cycle. And programs like Operation Ceasefire provide a way out, again, for those who want it. And... I think Nick Wilson and I would probably agree. Well, I don't know if Nick Wilson would actually agree about Project Ceasefire, Operation Ceasefire, because that does involve, you know, putting violent offenders behind bars. But that's one violence intervention program that I can fully get behind. Again, we're not talking about putting new laws on the books. We're not talking about going after lawful gun owners. We're addressing the actual problem, right? Who are the folks committing these crimes? Okay, let's start there if we want to reduce crime. Let's not worry about the people who will never commit an armed robbery or a home invasion or a drive-by shooting. Let's start with those folks that we know are doing these things. And if we focus our efforts there, guess what? We're going to see much better results than if we try to ban our way to safety by telling people who aren't committing crimes, hey, you can't own these guns. You can't carry your guns over here, right? Uh, anyway, 
So that that's Nick Wilson's argument. Um, that, uh, boy, you know, uh, some states like Colorado, which had seen the, again, year and after year increase in violent crime, saw a decrease in violent crime last year. And that means that, uh, what they're doing is working because they put these gun control laws in place and ba-ba, the homicide rate dropped. Here's your counterpoint. Uh, as I wrote for Inside Sources, there are millions more guns around than there were four years ago. Yeah, the vast majority of cities reported fewer homicides than they did in 2020. That includes several cities where permitless carry recently took effect. Atlanta, for instance, reported a 22% decline in murders. Toledo, Ohio, which, by the way, uh, Nick Wilson, you know, uh, pilloried Ohio as one of these states that introduced constitutional carry, which supposedly made the state more dangerous in his words. But Toledo, Ohio saw a 34% drop in the homicide rate, almost identical to the 33% decline in Oklahoma City, where constitutional carry has been in effect for a couple of years. The mayor of Miami, Florida, boasted that the city had the fewest homicides since 1947, even though gun control activists predicted that Florida's permitless carry law would lead to more violence when Governor Ron DeSantis signed it into law last year. Again, none of that should have been possible if the gun controllers were right that more guns leads to more crime. Uh, as I went on to say, the uh, same advocates also asserted that the demise of may issue concealed carry laws, which required applicants to demonstrate a uh, justifiable need to have a firearm in self-defense, would also lead to more dangerous cities. But there's no evidence that the Supreme Court's decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin had any detrimental effect on public safety last year. In the first full year that shall issue concealed carry was in place, Baltimore, Maryland, recorded fewer than 300 homicides for the first time in nearly a decade. At the same time, Los Angeles and New York saw 10% declines, even as more citizens were lawfully carrying firearms in self-defense. Again, uh, may not be uh, the tens of thousands of folks that we would want to see carrying because of the delays in Los Angeles County, where it's taking more than a year for concealed carry license to be processed. The rates of denial in New York City have actually gone up, but you've had more applicants uh, post-Bruin. So there are more concealed carry holders than were uh, on the streets of New York beforehand. But again, that shouldn't have happened either, according to the gun control activists, right? The demise of May issue was going to put more guns on the streets. And that, in turn, was going to lead to more violent crime, which didn't happen. Uh, I also talked again about the fact that crime is local. It is a local phenomenon. Um, evidence of this, I pointed out, uh, Kansas City and St. Louis, both in Missouri, right? Both operate under the same set of gun laws. Missouri has firearms preemption, so localities are not allowed to have uh, more stringent gun laws than what are on the books of the state level. So you've got two cities operating under the very same set of laws and two very different results in 2023. Uh, according to the crime stats, homicides increased by 7% in Kansas City, Missouri. They decreased by more than 20% in St. Louis. Now, if the lax gun laws, quote-unquote, are to blame for the rise in homicides in Kansas City, which they are, according to Nick Wilson, then why aren't those same gun laws responsible for the 20% decline in homicides in St. Louis? I don't think Nick Wilson would have a good answer for that. But the truth, as I said, is that crime is largely a local phenomenon. Now, what happened in 2020 that caused the national crime rate to spike? Nick Wilson kind of alluded to this, right? He talked about the COVID pandemic. And you think about everything that happened that year, 
So not only do we have widespread civil unrest and riots after the uh, 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 you know riots broke out in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, but you also had the closure of the court system in many parts of the country. You had the emptying of jails so that COVID didn't spread behind bars, and those. Just those two things alone. You have the defund the police movement. Well, you can add that too, right? Um, after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, I mean, that was a huge movement in a lot of blue cities. We've got to defund the police. We've got to reinvent and reimagine policing. Um, those had major impacts on violent crime. People were not being arrested. When they were being arrested, they were not going to trial. And those delays weren't rectified on January 1st, 2021. It took time for the court systems to get back to even the level of dysfunction that we normally expect to see in the criminal justice system. Um, but in the meantime, and in some states, by the way, it still hasn't really returned to normal. You know, we still have problems not only with um, far too many plea bargains. Because prosecutors just, you know, have this assembly line system of getting rid of these cases as soon as they can. But some jurisdictions are still suffering from a shortage of public defenders. You've had cases that have been dismissed because uh, folks have been waiting for so long to go to trial that their constitutional rights to a speedy trial have been violated. And they've been cut loose. Now, again, I think that those problems are getting better. But I say that. That is why we saw the historic rise in homicides and violent crime in 2020. It wasn't because we had more guns on the streets, because, again, we had even more in 2021, 2022, and 2023. But we had all of these other factors at play, right, that have, I won't say uh, largely resolved themselves, but they are at least uh, trending in the right direction. Coincidentally or not, so is the homicide rate. In most cities. As I write um, in my counterpoint, gun control advocates may want to point at Kansas City uh, while ignoring the progress made in St. Louis. But if we're serious about improving public safety, then we need an honest accounting of what's working, what isn't, and yes, what can be done without infringing on the fundamental right to armed self defense. The data are telling us that more guns don't equal more crime. But unfortunately, the gun control lobby and their allies in elected office don't seem to be listening. And sadly, that is the truth, right? As we've seen in uh, Colorado, we just saw the uh, carry killer bill uh, formally introduced on Wednesday. I think 19 new gun-free zones. Again, all of these efforts aimed at law-abiding gun owners. In fact, in Colorado, that's so stupid. So they're, they're trying to declare most of the state off limits to concealed carry now, right? But the punishment for violating these gun-free zones, at least as is currently written in this bill, it's a unclassified misdemeanor. First offense, $250 fine. Second offense, $1,000 fine. Do you think somebody with evil intentions... Somebody who's planning on a targeted shooting or, or, or even just, you know, a uh, garden variety violent criminal who's out looking for an armed robbery, an easy target, somebody to rob. 
Do you think they're going to be thwarted by a gun-free zone to begin with? Or are they going to see that as a target of opportunity? But then you add in the fact that if they violate that gun-free zone, it's a $250 fine. What kind of, I mean, what criminal is going to be dissuaded by uh, the thought of paying a fine if they're arrested for carrying in a gun-free zone? I, I don't think any of them are. In fact, I'm not even sure how many lawful gun owners are going to be dissuaded from carrying in these places. The penalty is a $250 fine. You know, the uh, old adage about better to be judged by 12 than carried by six. Well, if it's risking paying a couple hundred bucks versus your family paying for the cost of a funeral, yeah, I know a lot of gun owners who are going to say, ah, I'll, I'll, I'll take my chances. But again, <laughs> regardless of how viable uh, these gun laws are in practice, they are still aimed at the folks who are trying to abide by the law, who want to abide by the law, who just want truly reasonable laws on the books. And unfortunately, in state after state, what we are seeing is that the Democrats are taking a very unreasonable, unrealistic, and unconstitutional approach to public safety. Now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We will start there with a uh, disturbing case out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where a child was shot, and the uh, mother of that child sentenced to probation. Um, Amanda Krebs, her uh, child was shot back in June of last year after getting a hold of an unsecured firearm. She pleaded guilty last month to charges of neglecting a child with a consequence in bodily harm as well as felon in possession of a firearm. She was sentenced on Tuesday. The judge initially sentencing Krebs to three years in prison, plus three years of extended probation, but the judge then stayed that sentence and gave her probation instead. Yeah. Not only for allowing that uh, unsecured firearm to fall into the hands of uh, somebody who shot the uh, child, but... um, even being a felon in possession, not worthy of any time behind bars. According to Fox 6 in Milwaukee, prosecutors say after Krebs' son was shot, there were multiple stories given to investigators about what actually happened. A criminal complaint says the boy told police that he pulled the trigger because he thought it was a toy. Prosecutors say a witness told police that Krebs fired the weapon, hitting the child. Uh, but at an initial appearance, an attorney said that Krebs was not in the room when the uh, shot was fired. When police responded to the scene, they uh, found what they described as horrible living conditions inside the home. Standing sewage in the basement, bed bugs, cockroaches. The criminal complaint says the mother of six told police that the seven-year-old who was shot never attended school. Thankfully, the child's injuries were not life-threatening. It sounds like living with Krebs was life-threatening to this kid. The judge had a chance to send a message here, not just about leaving an unsecured firearm, but my God, for caring for the kids that you gave birth to, providing them with at least a a safe living environment, one in which there was not sewage uh, in the basement, cockroaches running around the, uh, the kitchen and the living room. And what happened? What message did the judge send? Don't let it happen again? Stay on the straight and narrow? 
three years probation for Amanda Krebs. I think just the child neglect alone, worthy of at least a little time behind bars. You can argue. I don't know what uh, the underlying felony was that uh, Krebs had been convicted of that uh, prohibited her from keeping a firearm. But again, supposedly, those are very important laws, aren't they? Keeping prohibited people from accessing a firearm. Don't gun control activists tell us all the time that uh, it's important to keep guns away from people who shouldn't have one? Well, according to the law in Wisconsin, Amanda Krebs shouldn't have had one. When she was caught with one, when that gun was fired and a child was harmed, a judge again said, no biggie, three years probation. Next case. Today's armed citizen story from uh, the Lone Star State of Texas, where a, a car owner forced to defend himself against armed burglars in uh, San Antonio. According to the San Antonio Police Department, there were several men who were trying to break into a car at a uh, Home Depot around 3 o'clock Wednesday afternoon, broad daylight, bold, brazen. The uh, car owner saw them. He said he felt threatened when he saw one of the suspects reaching for a gun, so that's when he pulled his own handgun, fired a couple of rounds at the uh, would-be burglars. They attempted to flee in a car. They hit other vehicles as they tried to escape. They then ditched their ride and uh, jumped into another car, apparently driven by an accomplice, before they uh, fled across the highway. Um, So far, no word on uh, who the suspects are. They've not been taken into custody. Uh, But thankfully, the uh, homeowner, or excuse me, the car owner, uninjured after uh, encountering the uh, armed car burglars because he had a firearm of his own. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, will enable to do the right thing, a, a man in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, who rescued a toddler that had uh, crawled out onto the roof of a building. Here's a uh, still shot of the uh, Good Samaritan in question who was able to uh, prevent any harm from coming to that child. According to the Woonsocket Police Department, the two-year-old had crawled through an open window and onto a balcony that was the uh, roof of a uh, residence on the first floor. That is when uh, someone who was just passing by saw what was going on and hopped up uh, on top of that uh, balcony, taking the uh, child and pulling him to safety. The uh, man requested anonymity, uh, but according to police, the toddler's mom allegedly left the window open uh, overnight because it was hot, having to be close to the uh, child's bed. Uh, Michelle Higgins told WJAR-TV that she called 911 when she saw the toddler on the balcony. She was driving her kids to school when she saw the child, and then she saw the man as well. She said the baby was really coming to the edge and going back, and you could see the window was open. She said, and the gentleman in the street was trying to tell the baby, go back, go back, go back. And then the man just jumped into action. She said, I don't know how he got up on the side of the building. My son keeps saying he has to be (laughs) Spider-Man. Well, whoever he is, he was in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to uh, prevent a two-year-old from being seriously injured there, falling off the uh, roof. So, anonymous Good Samaritan in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, we thank you. For your very, very good deed. That is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. I am looking forward to being back with you on Monday. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at what's going on in New Mexico. The 30-day session is rapidly coming to a close. In fact, uh, next week uh, is when the session is supposed to gavel out. 
will we see Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's extensive anti-gun agenda get to her desk? There are signs that some of her top priorities may be stalling out in the legislature, but I think it is way too early uh, to uh, even predict victory, much less to announce it. If you're a Mexico, New Mexico gun owner, please stay in contact with your lawmakers. Please encourage them to vote against every one of these infringements. But we'll be talking about what's going on in New Mexico. We're also uh, eyeing some news out of Massachusetts that we'll be uh, discussing on next week's program. And, of course, the latest legislative litigation and armed citizen stories each and every day here on Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Hope that uh, you'll tune in. Hope you'll be a part of the uh, program as well. Um, you know, leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. And be sure to check out BearingArms.com throughout the day. We're keeping you up to date on all of the latest news impacting your right to keep and bear arms from all across the country. If you like what you see, I'd also encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member. Just go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get an extensive discount on your VIP or VIP Gold membership. We're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. Is our way of saying thanks for showing your support, because it really does make a difference, and it truly does matter. So thank you again. Hope you have a great couple of days until we talk again. Until then, be well. Be safe and be free.